0: Hello, it's Samir, and welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and uncover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. In this episode, I chat with Raj Bafsar. Raj is an Olympic athlete, world class gymnast, entrepreneur, and artist. His accolades are simply outstanding bronze medal in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games, World Championship silver medals, three World Cup medals, three U.S. national titles, three NCAA national titles, 11 years on the senior national team, and the creation of two new gymnastic skills, now called a bussar on rings and parallel bars. We cover some amazing stories, like what it's like to be at the Olympics, as well as the mental toughness to be a world-class athlete and gymnast. So please enjoy this deep, emotional, eye-opening conversation with Raj Bafsar. Raj, welcome to South Asian Stories.
1: Thank you so much, Samir. Good to be here.
0: We uh, are very, very excited to have you on, man. You are first, first athlete on on the, on the podcast, and and so many accolades. I was reading a lot about your bio, and you know, I've you know, it's funny when you went to the Beijing Olympics, I was uh, 14, and I, oh. I distinctly remember how incredible, I'm sorry, I was 18, I was distinctly remember how incredible to see you on stage, and just, you've been an inspiration for a lot of people, so we're just so excited to have you on.
1: Well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, um, I would love to start, Raj, about uh, um, your background. I understand you. You're you're a fellow Texan. You grew up in Houston. I'm I'm originally from Dallas. So,
1: can you well, talk well, us a
0: little bit about how you grew up and what that was like?
1: Yeah, I uh, grew up in an outside part of Houston, like a suburb. It was called uh, Bear Creek. Maybe actually, people have heard of it now since uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey. Um, but <laughs> yeah, we grew up. I uh, grew up there. Spent like you know most of like all my elementary days i went to elementary school there in in the subdivision and um it was uh you know i was kind of a i guess this leads into gymnastics in a way i was a, an active kid so to speak meaning i would climb everywhere inside and outside the house um, and so um yeah we had a really good group of friends too uh what's that no go ahead Oh, no, we had a really good group of friends that was, I think, kind of instigated me for that kind of stuff. And and I think that's where really um, the birth of the whole gymnastics uh, story began, was at that house and in that subdivision. So a lot of great memories there.
0: Yeah. What was your earliest memory of gymnastics? Like, did your parents just, hey, th- throw you into a class, let's see how this goes? Or did you try a bunch of sports out and gymnastics was the one that stuck? What was that like?
1: I actually did both, but very early on, um, I think I, I think a lot of us gymnasts we have the monkey gene, and, <laughs> uh, and for all you parents out there, you'll kind of see if your kid has it if he's he or she is climbing around the house and climbing on top of the furniture and all that kind of stuff. Well, that was me, and so I think uh, my one of my dad's coworkers said, "Well, why not gymnastics?" And my dad had a little bit of history with gymnastics in in India but not super extensively. And so I think it was kind of a natural fit. They put me in a class uh, when I was four years old. And it's, you know, I was too young to really know that I love it at that age. But what I do remember is just feeling free, like that's where I felt the most free. And so, um, you know, from ages four, all the way through 12, um, I, I did gymnastics, but I also did some other sports along the way. And you know, what really, you know, it, it doing the other sports almost kind of solidified for me that gymnastics was what I really wanted to do.
0: Got it. Got it. And what yeah. about gymnastics really made you say, hey, this is something that I want to pursue long term? Was it, uh, you know, you felt that you had a natural talent for it, and then you're like, hey, I'm pretty good at this. Or was it something about it that was interesting to you that made it, um, you know, more than just a, a hobby for most people?
1: Um, like at a young, at a very young age, you yeah. mean, um, I think it's, you know, thinking, thinking back to it now, I, I would have to say that the, it's the same feeling is what I love about it now. And that was the feeling of doing the skills. So, I mean, while I may have noticed a natural talent, you know, around ages 12 and 13, that, that really wasn't the strongest motivating factor. For me, it was, it was the feeling of doing flips and twists and being in the air and being incredibly strong. um, And the wide variety of skills that we gymnasts put ourselves through. That's what that's what was the golden thread throughout all of this. And that Mm -hmm. was that that started as a young kid. And that carried all the way uh, until the day I retired at age 27. So um, I think that's really what stands out the most is the feeling, the true feeling of doing the tricks.
0: Yeah, no, that's incredible. Do, do you feel like, so one of the things, the questions that we've been asked for our listeners, and um, I, I want to get your perspective on this, is coming from being South Asian, you know, a lot of people do athletic endeavors when they were young, but some of the times, you know, lot of parents say, hey, athletics have to come second fiddle, or you need to do it after academics. Can you talk to us what that was like in your household or a family, where, you know, you obviously are a, are a star athlete, but did you ever have any pressure to say, hey, Raj, you need to think about academics or think about that? Because I know a lot of listeners probably struggle with that, even if they're really good athlete in one sport or another.
1: Uh, yeah, I think at a very early age, my dad instilled in me that you know, all of gymnastics and all of this stuff would come to an end if the grades uh, were not kept up. And so, you know, keeping the grades up was a motivating factor to stay in gymnastics very early on. And then I kind of figured out that both of them together is really a system. So, like, in the same way a student might figure out the system of school, this I had to figure out the system of time management very mm-hmm. early on. And so, um, I think you know it, it. I think it's a very motivating thing for any kid to hear that you know academics uh, above all else. But it it doesn't have to be a choice. Meaning, um, you're either going to be one or the other. Both can be done simultaneously. In fact, I really believe that one complements the other. That
0: sure.
1: you know, if if at any point athletics was slipping, well, there might be a reason academically and vice versa. And so um, I think I think it's a they they work very, very well together simply because of, you know, mind to body connection. And so um, that's what I really enjoyed about it. And going into high school, I felt like was actually like a competitive advantage that as long as I stayed strong athletically and academically, then I kind of felt more complete and more whole. And so that became a drive to do both very well.
0: Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's some really great points. And so you, 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 you grow up, you start doing gymnastics, you start getting really good. You're in high school. Um, when does it start to occur to you, Raj, that you're like, Hey, I'm pretty darn good at this thing. Olympics may be in my future. Can you talk about that Olympic thought and the Olympic journey? Like when that first crossed your mind and then how you started to progress and, and, and pursue that?
1: Yeah, I think. You know, I, I noticed it before high school that around, you know, a lot of people don't know this is that at a very young age, like from ages four to 10, I was not very good. So <laughs> really, <laughs> no, it wasn't like a, an innate natural, just, you know, all star type of thing from the early days. I actually, you know, the joke is, is like you bring home some brown ribbons and things or purple ribbons, which means you were kind of way out there in the in the like eighth ninth tenth place well for any athlete it's got to start somewhere and that's where it started for me but by around 12 um two things kind of happened um I, i noticed that i had certain strengths in areas where some athletes didn't um or some other gymnasts didn't and so i was like hmm maybe i have a little bit of a competitive advantage here and then secondly um a decision was kind of made that around that age 12, 13, that if if I'm going to dedicate my life to this sport, and this is what I'm going to do, then I want to try to be the best at it. And, and if you know, the way I looked at it was I'm spending so many hours in the gym, I've got some strengths, I've got some things I need to work on. But There are guys out there who go on to Olympic teams and there are people who take sports to a very high level. And for me, that was something that I just really wanted to do. So those two things together kind of jump-started the Olympic engine, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know when I was going to make it, but I just kind of set my eyes on it. When I saw some of these guys compete on TV, I think it was the 92 games and the 96 games. And I watched, you know, the, the older senior guys who were on the team yeah. there and I was sitting there watching them on TV. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be there one day. And and you know, the 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 rest is kind of what happened after ages 13 to 17 or even my high school years. I did start to progress pretty pretty well. Meaning, you know, I I think my coaches and my program and the teammates that I was under a lot, they helped me become really good. And I couldn't have done it without them. But around that time, I started winning more. I started winning more competitions, like all-around competitions. Um, you know, five. I won state championships in Texas like five times. Regional, uh, wow. regional, yeah, three times. And then I, and then in ages sixteen or seventeen and eighteen, I won the junior national championship two times in a row. And and so you know it was kind of after and during my junior years i was like okay it seems like i'm progressing or at least this would be the track for someone later on to to try to make and push for an olympic team so that's a long long winded answer you. no there.
0: i i love it i love it and you so you do all this training you win these championships you're like hey okay i can i can see this path forward Talk to us about the the 2004 Olympic trials because um, you know I know that you were in contention for the U.S. Olympic team, and I want to hear the story behind that. What's what? Can you walk us through that first run at the Olympics and 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 what that was like?
1: Sure. Um. So you know around like. I guess when I'm leaving high school around 18, I, I kind of start setting my eyes on which Olympics I would be the right age to try and make a run for. And 2004 was like the ideal time frame for me because I would just have finished college. Um, I would be taking the sport to kind of a professional level, meaning training two times a day. And so I set 2004 as like the ultimate goal and target and, actually wrapped quite a bit of my identity around it, which we'll get to later. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, um, so, you know, the 2004 Olympic trials come along and I'm a I'm, I'm prepared athlete, but I'm also very novice in terms of, um, you know, the magnitude, understanding the magnitude of what an Olympic trials and then an Olympic games, what it commands of of. of of a person. And so when the trials came along, I performed really well, despite, you know, kind of being a little bit young to the game. Mm -hmm. I ended up being I think, third all around, third or fourth all around uh, in the country. And it was just, it was such a weird Olympic trials and selection process um, that, you know, we had some guys who were injured, who were put on the team um we had some guys who had missed the Olympic trials c- completely, um, and then USA gymnastics at the last second decided to hold another Olympic trials, like at the Colorado training center, oh, really so yeah, it's just a, you know it was it's just a kind of a liminy snick. it's a series of unfortunate events <laughs> that, you know um yeah. and and what happened was I missed the two thousand four Olympic team, like when they rattled off the names they rattled off the final names and then they called my name as alternate and my world just came crashing down because it was at that moment where i had thought about all the years you know from being a young kid and having that dream and you know kind of believing in a way naively that all you had to do was work hard and have a passion for something and dream big and you're going to get it and and so when i didn't get it i didn't understand why Life didn't work out the way that we were always told right. um you know in these books and and inspirational things and so um yeah, when I was named alternate, it was just a big like almost everything coming crashing down you know I didn't know how to handle it, and so um yeah that's that's kind of up until that's how I was named alternate to the uh to the two thousand and four Olympic team, and so that was in Greece.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you get there, right, you're named alternate. I can't imagine yeah. what you're what you're thinking right at that moment, right? You're just like as you said, your your mind everything starts crashing down. What was yeah, what was your like next day like or next few weeks or next year like? How did you deal with that adversity? How did you grow from that? I wanna I would love to hear your thoughts behind that.
1: Well, I was young at the time, so, you know, we must be I angry. didn't have a, <laughs> you, you nailed it. You know, the day after I was, I was incredibly angry. Um, I think my, my parents, even after they heard the news, they flew to Colorado where they had done that selection um, just to kind of be with me because they didn't believe it either. Um, and uh, yeah, I was very, very angry. I was you know, angry at a lot of people. Um, the, the day after that's where a lot of the anger was, but then, you know, it kind of followed the same, it resembled kind of the grieving process where as time went on, um, that anger turned to a lot of just despair, you know, and, uh, hopelessness. And I actually like left the sport completely, um, in 2000, like after, after getting back from Greece, um, and, and what's crazy about this is at the Olympics, you know, a lot of people, even people close to me, would tell me, keep praying, keep believing, something's going to happen, you're going to get your chance to compete. And so I still kind of naively believed the the, the thing, you know, that, oh, you know, life is you're going to get what you wish for. You always do. And life is just like a train track and it's going to be boom, 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 boom. And then yeah. the Olympics. Just, yeah. And so that's what I, that's what I believed, you know, and, and even going to the Olympics, people were still telling me, nope, keep your spirits up. Something's going to happen. You're going to get to compete. And so I kind of still held on to that. Well, it didn't happen, you know? And so, um, just kind of imagine wrapping your entire identity and self-worth and everything around a goal like that. And yeah. then, yeah. Um, when it doesn't happen, what happens afterwards? Well, you, you know, I I took the ride down. It was a very difficult time in life. Um, it was a very rough, rough patch in terms, and rough is an understatement. Um, but I left the sport completely because I was angry um, and uh, just kind of was lost. Honestly, uh, I'd lost a lot of uh, a lot of lost lost a lot of like, I still love gymnastics, but. I didn't want to be around the sport specifically. Mm -hmm. And so it was very, very, it was a very, very trying time, you know, and, you know, given this is a South Asian audience, I can even share some of the thoughts that, of course, you know, in the course of that time, one would think just being a minority, does that have anything to do with the fact that I was left off the team? But, you know, one thing I told myself as, as, being an athlete very on was that I was just never going to join that conversation. So even as a kid, um, even as a kid, when sometimes either a coach or somebody else would say, well, he's just so different. You know, we've never had a a kid like this before, or maybe it's your background or ethnicity. I just, I just didn't join, you know, Uh, I I wasn't going to let that determine uh, a specific outcome, uh, you know, and so I never went chasing down that answer, so to speak. Instead, I always tried to do make myself a better athlete instead of it.
0: Yeah, and so. I, that's a, such a great point, Raj, where you you say, "Hey, I could think about this. Could be there are many reasons why they didn't pick me, but I'm I'm really glad you you said that. That you know what, I'm an athlete first, and mm-hmm. they picked me or not picked me based on my skills and, and nothing else." Um, I want to talk a little bit of what you said about before about identity. You know you say your identity was really wrapped up in making the team, and when it didn't happen, what kind of things or what kind of techniques did you use to to reinvent yourself, or how did you evolve your identity after that crushing loss
1: yeah, great, great question. Um, I think there was a very pivotal moment where. And and the pivotal moment only came through like a a serious commitment to understanding why I had failed. And backtracking a little bit, I would say that after 2004, I was stuck in a in a world where I thought the system and people had failed me. Mm -hmm. And in reading books, especially one book in particular called The Success Principles. the first principle in that book is about accountability. And there I was, I think I was 25 years old or 24 years old, learning about being 100% accountable for everything that happens in your life. And it, it was the first chapter. And right there, it kind of just stopped me because I'd never heard anything really like that before. That Look, I can continue going on playing the blame game and, you know, blame people or lose my faith in people or USA Gymnastics or selection committees and, and think about all the ways that they wronged me. Or I could actually take responsibility for what has happened and then put myself back in the driver's seat and then decide what I'm going to do. And that was a very pivotal moment because as soon as I owned it and started to own, the circumstances of 2004, that jump-started a whole engine of learning. Because after that, it became, well, okay, if I'm the one that failed, then I want to know why I failed. Mm -hmm. Why why was I a nervous wreck before the Olympic trials? Why did I have this, you know, this kind of looping of negative thoughts and negative self-speak going on in my brain? And so all of these questions kind of Uh, spurred me to start reading a lot of books on on different subjects and then talking with with professionals in this area, which I I did. Um, And it was through this time around 2004 to 2006 that I realized, well, I still actually love gymnastics. Maybe I don't agree with what happened in 2004, and maybe I'll never get an answer. That's fine. But do I want to try one more time for 2008? And the answer didn't really come easily, but what did happen was was this, the thing that became the catalyst was understanding self-worth. And before 2004, I measured my self-worth based on my achievements. Probably because I was young, probably because I didn't even know that I was doing it. Um, But after going through an experience like 2004 uh, and missing the team, it really opened up my eyes to the concept that, you know, maybe I'm missing the boat here on self-worth, that the self-worth that I'm talking about, the identity, like who we are, who I am as a human being on this planet, maybe there are much more grander things and very important. Important things in life to bench my self-worth on rather than the roller coaster of sporting results. And so that was a big eye-opener. And so part of my work in kind of reinventing myself was kind of reshaping the building blocks of of being a human being. A, I had to find faith in people and trust in people again, and even maybe even faith in a higher power because I thought that everything had let me down. So I had to kind of restore my faith in some of these things. And coupled with that was an understanding of where to where to measure my self-worth. That if I'm going to go for 2008, it's not going to be about achievements. That's not where I'm going to get my fulfillment and joy. And so I really had to work on myself and figure out the things that really and truly brought me joy. And those were going to become the bedrock of kind of my my inner constitution, my soul, nobody was going to take those things away. It was never measured on sporting results. So things like, you know, our family, we have a huge family that gets together and they've always been there for me mm-hmm. through every competition. That, that is very concrete and it's something I can attach myself to. The love of family is, was, was always going to be there. Um, and then so then there were other lighter things, like I love animals and dogs and, and things like that and, and some other hobbies and whatnot. So the range was very wide, but it encompassed everything except sporting results. And so I, I, I really gained a, a greater understanding of, of some of this, like, I guess, life philosophy, so to speak. And that became a, a, more of a, a guiding motivation to try one more time for two thousand eight.
0: That is incredible. That is incredible. And I want to underscore a few things that you said, Raj, which I think are really important. The fact that you said, hey, my self-worth is not equal to what my sporting achievements were. And I think that's something that South Asians deal with a lot where it's not even mm-hmm. just sporting events, but it's like any achievement, whether it be sure. school or work yeah. or everything, they define themselves based on the external outputs. But I love what That's you said thing. is you had to go internal and be like, hey, I'm not just defined by this. My family is super important to me. I love animals. I love all these other things that give me that joy and happiness, which I think makes you a person. You know, you're know, you not just what other people see and what you did. It's what you have on the inside. So I think... Sure. I love, love, love that point.
1: Oh, um, uh, yeah, no, no problem.
0: So, okay, so you, you've gone through this journey, you've read, you've, you've helped, you've, you've kind of fixed, you know, what kind of the, the, the issues that you had in 2004. Can you talk us through the story and journey now to 2008? Like, I think one of the things that you, you talked about is how you got your mental state right. Can you talk about how improving your mental state got you over the hump and what that journey was like for 2008?
1: Do you mean like some of the things that I started to do to to kind of get back on track to train for 2008, like outside of the gym type yeah, of thing? Yeah,
0: because I'm very curious to know because there's such a – people see the physical side of gymnastics and how incredibly right. that is. But I'm sure a bigger part is the mental state behind it. Can sure. you talk about how you got into that flow state and how you approached the training behind that?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question because, you know, at at that point when I was setting my eyes on 2008, um, I was 24, 25, so kind of no longer a kid in the sports and more so a veteran. Um, And what I realized at that point was exactly what you're saying the sport at that level really is mostly mental. I would say almost 90% competing at those very large competitions. And the mental state that I was in where, you know, despite me learning this new principle on accountability and self worth and all this stuff, um, I was still, I was still harboring negative thoughts, um, probably previously from 2004 and other experiences. And so, um, one of the main components of getting in the right mental state for me was I needed to somewhat understand and backtrack how the brain works and specifically why my brain was doing what it was Sure, Um, because I didn't want to go into big competitions with negative thoughts and doubts and things like that. Um, So I did did several things. What I did, probably the the number one thing that I did was I broke down the Olympic goal into um, several moving parts. So I made a a huge mind map uh, and I put it on my wall and it basically broke down for me, how to make an Olympic team into several different areas. So, um, you know, I had, outside of the gymnastics training, one of the things I did was I worked with a sports performance counselor named Robert Andrews, and we would comb through a lot of the experiences that I had in childhood and in gymnastics to see if I was ever harboring any kind of negative energy around that, or holding that cellular energy in my body. Yeah. Um, it turns out we all do. Uh, and and if you get the opportunity to kind of comb through some of your past experiences that have shaped you, and actually rewire them in your brain, well, then you know that's a it's a huge step in recovering from things like even PTSD or traumatic experiences. And so that's what I, that's, that's where I spent some time doing that. I also took on like a massive education, reading tons of books on, um, you know, I guess life philosophy, more of an understanding of the brain. There was great books on, on self-talk and doubt. Um, I did a lot of yoga, ton of yoga. Yoga was probably one of the most beneficial things I did because, really? uh, cool. I was an old. I oh yeah, I was an older athlete and um, you know my body wasn't as capable as say like a 19 or 20 year old, and I needed to stay competitive. So that was one reason I did yoga was to keep my joints healthy. but the bigger and deeper reason, it was it was really in the yoga room in front of the mirror where I really learned to accept myself. So flaws. Uh, great things, everything, especially coming off of 2004 or any traumatic experience for any human being, if, when you ever get the chance to look into a mirror and and really affirm yourself and say, this is where I am now, it brings you to the present moment. And suddenly you, I could accept things for the way they were and I was given a starting point, kind of a launching pad, that from this moment on I was going to rework myself into a new human being, that supports this giant Olympic type goal. And so yoga was immensely beneficial, immensely. Um, Something else that I did, um, neurofeedback, some things like that where I I tested different foods. Um, This was a very interesting test that uh, you actually send like electrical currents through certain foods and substances and things to see how they resonate with your body. Oh, wow. yeah, it was really interesting. So I, I took things to a very high level just to, to, what what it all encompassed was that if I'm going to make an Olympic team, it probably requires every ounce of me, yeah. every ounce. And yeah. so that will that's what was different than 2004. In 2004, I was probably just a little bit. Young thinking that, oh, I've made, you know, I was great as a junior and I've made the senior national team, and the next stop on this train is just the Olympic Games, and that's how life's going to work. Well, going into 2008, you know, a completely different person now understanding that it, if you're going to make an, something like an Olympic team or do anything big in life, it's going to require all of you. And so what does, what does giving all of yourself to a goal mean? For me, it meant I'm going to uncover every single stone. So if, it's, if I need to dissect, like, why my brain is working the way it is, or if I need to spend more hours in the gym, or if I need to work with a nutritionist, or if I need to go work with uh, Robert Andrews, or if I need to, you know, e- everything, basically. So I even took that to the extent of, you know, At the time, instead of playing video games, I put all that (laughs) stuff down and started, I was summarizing books at night. So I would get home from practice and I would basically summarize the success principles for no reason. I didn't have like homework or a deadline, but it was just like to keep my brain trained. And so that, that's, it was a lot, it was a massive effort from, from that standpoint. So hopefully that answers you,
0: asked. you know, that is a great, great answer. And it goes back to a quote that I think about a lot is the fact that what got you here won't get you there. So like what you said of what got you to, you know, the junior championships, the senior championships, but then getting to the Olympics is just a whole nother level that... I think 2004, you were like, hey, I tried just doing what I always did. But then you're like, wait, Mm -hmm. I need to change a lot of things up to be successful. And I love that you just broke that down. That mind map is an amazing, amazing idea. Just to really break down a big boulder into smaller rocks and say, how can I attack each
1: of these? Exactly. That's what that was. And it was visual. So, you know, anytime I walked into my room, there it was. And so, you know, yeah.
0: So... You do all these things, right? You go to your 2008 um, Olympic trials. Talk to us about that. Like, how did you feel different? I know the result was a lot more positive for you. Can you talk about what was going through your head and the result and, and, and how that made you feel?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know if people know this, but so I, in 2004, I was the alternate. And then so I do all of this reinvention of myself and then go into the 2008 Olympic trials with kind of a new lease on life, so to speak, (laughs) or basically a a philosophy that I told myself that regardless of the outcome that I as a human being, I'm I was going to be okay, you know. And so that was at the ground floor of everything. Now, that still means I want to make this team. So. I compete in the 2008 Olympic Trials. I end up doing better than I did in 2004. Um, I think I was like top three on three events and almost second in the all-around. And when it came time to announce the team, they rattle off the names. And they're like, one, John Horton, two, Joey Haggerty, and so on. And then they call all the names. And I didn't hear my name again. And I'm like, what? And then I heard alternate. Raj Bhavsar. And so I don't think a lot of people know this, that in 2004, I was named alternate. I trained again for 2008. And then after the Olympic trials, I was still the alternate. And the story basically goes is that in the two weeks after the Olympic trials, um, we got a word that Paul Hamm, he was the number one gymnast in the nation at the time and the reigning Olympic champion, he had broken his finger and it hadn't; it wasn't healing. And so he pulled out of the Olympic Games because he wasn't able to perform all the gymnastics. And that opened up a new chance for a, kind of a replacement athlete. And so two days before the entire Olympic team is leaving for Beijing, oh, wow. uh, yeah, a press conference is held, and and you know people call me to the gym, and I've got my coach there, and then we do this whole thing on the telephone. And then they announced me as the replacement to Paul Hom, and that's how I made the 2008 Olympic team. So it's pretty wild. Yeah, that is wild. Yeah, and backtracking, you probably want to know, like, you know, after 2008, what does someone do when they're named alternate again or or they don't get something that they want even a second time or a third time? And, you know, how do you find the strength to keep going? I mean, the answer is it's very hard to find. And the strength to keep going and there were there were times where I, I wanted to refuse the position and not go uh, as an alternate and I wanted to just be done with gymnastics carry on with my life because I said I was going to be okay and move on it would have hurt but there was you know the influence of my parents I think my dad had said something very pivotal to me um, right before I was about to give up he said how long have you worked how, how long have you been a gymnast And I said, 24 years at that time, we were at a restaurant, and I said, 24 years. And he said, and when are these Olympics? And I said, it's about three weeks away. And he was like, so what do you have to lose if you just, after 24 years, you only have three weeks left to just finish your career as a gymnast, regardless if you're the alternate or not? And I took a moment, and I said, that makes a lot of sense. And I went home and thought about it. I decided to stay the alternate and then after that I also decided to continue writing some of my affirmations that, and I'm. this is kind of jumping around, but one of the things that I did do while reinventing myself, so going back to like 2007 while I'm doing all this reinvention stuff, mm-hmm. was I did a lot of written affirmations. And one of those written affirmations was I am on the 2008 Olympic team and I wrote that hundreds if not maybe thousands of times on just sheets of paper just kept writing and writing and writing and writing and um, I did that all the way through the 2008 Olympic trials and so then when I was named alternate again it was really hard to keep all of this all of these new things and transformations and principles alive but the one that I did keep alive was the written affirmation so even after being alternate And my dad saying what he did at the restaurant, I went home and just continued to write. I am on the two thousand eight Olympic team. I am on the two thousand eight Olympic team, despite being an alternate and not knowing what's going to happen at the time. And then that phone call happened, where I was replaced, or Paul was replaced, and that's how I was named to the team. And so there was a lot of, you know, I don't know what to call it—higher level life energy, Mm -hmm. yeah. I call universal, you know. Some people here call it law of attraction and whatnot. Um, it, I went from in two thousand four to not believing any of that to kind of restoring my faith and then putting all my faith in in that kind of realm or world, and and to see the f- fruits of it and and it actually manifests was that is as profound as going to the Olympics and winning a medal, truthfully.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that that is an absolutely incredible story. I want to know, like, you know, you do these affirmations, and I've heard this technique before. I'm going to be on the 2008 Olympic team. You get the call that, you know, Paul is injured, and we want you on the team. What went through your head? Like, were you like, holy cow, this is happening? Or, like, I'm, I'm curious to know do you remember that exact moment?
1: Holy cow is one way to put it yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, like when i when the news of Paul pulling out of the Olympic Games yeah. came to to be um, for me kind of alarm bells went off and uh, almost a new sense of purpose like Oh my God! Are we about to go through another Olympic team selection? And if we are, am I ready? Um, And and how are they going to pick the new person? I had no idea, and so my reaction, honestly, probably a little bit of panic. And in that panic, (laughs) I called called my Japanese coach at the time, and he was—he's awesome. Um, You know, I I called him and I said, "We got to go to the gym." And he was like, "Why?" I said, I'll tell you when we get there. And then when he meets me at the gym, I'm like already stretching and working out and getting real serious. He's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I tell him like, Paul is Paul is pulling out of the Olympic Games and he's just quiet. And so I end up doing a workout just because I know what's about to happen. Like the <laughs> U.S. guys are going to be in need of an athlete to fill Paul's shoes. Well, I better be ready, you know, just in case it's me. So that was my initial reaction. And then, you know, I I called my, my parents too. And I mean, it's just a wild ride. I, I, it was so difficult that I got like strep throat at the time. And my, you know, it's, it was, it was, a, don't know if a lot of people know this, but like Olympic trials pressure is, I don't wish that kind of stress upon anybody. I'm sure. I am sure. It's not yeah, it's not a healthy stress. <laughs> um, and so your body pays a price. So anyway, I was like, this is going to happen again. We have another Olympic team selection. This is ridiculous. And and so the story goes, that's how I was named. You know? Yeah.
0: So you, yeah. you're you named as part of the U.S. men's Olympic team. You get to Beijing. Tell us about mm-hmm. your experience there, because I'm sure people are listening have seen Olympics. I'm sure everyone has seen an event. I'm sure they've seen a gymnastics event. What's it like being on the on the background like what's it like being in the Olympic game your whole life has been you know gearing to this kind of uh, you know two week event can you talk us through what that experience was like
1: Yeah it's it's pretty surreal <laughs> I bet. You know It when you no know, you're taking the trip over from the United States over to Beijing and it it, it becomes the first time it becomes real is is when you go through a thing called processing and that's where they, they our processing was in San Jose. So we flew from San Jose to Beijing, but in San Jose they load us up with all the Olympic gear. So all the cool clothes that you guys see team USA wearing during the Olympics. um, We get all that stuff before we leave for the Olympics. So we have it to wear there. And so Processing is a giant warehouse filled with the coolest Olympic clothes from the coolest <laughs> sponsors imaginable, and like amazing toys and trinkets and GoPros and what have you, and 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 all that kind of stuff. And so it's it's uh, that's that's when the kid in the candy store feeling sure. happens. I
0: was just about and to the, say that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, And so that's one of my favorite experiences. But then the then once you board the plane, and, you know, you're flying over to Beijing, and you're all it's a it's a chartered flight by United, and it's full of Olympic athletes. It's like, okay, we're, we're going on a mission. Now it's a mission. And so that sense is kind of carried with you that all of a sudden, you're flying overseas, you're representing red, white and blue you know, your, your home country and, and you're going over for a mission mission to try to bring home some hardware, you know, back to your, to the home country, you know, the United States where everybody's going to be back home supporting you. So yeah, it gives you chills, you know, it's, yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty massive. And, and when you land in Beijing and you start to see how the, or I landed in Beijing and just saw how the, the whole city had turned Olympic, there was a whole whole area of it that was just everything Olympic. And China, you know, we were very fortunate to go to the the one that we competed in was in China because, you know, unbiasedly, I think that China Olympics, they just put on the grandest show. Oh, by far. Ever. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. I remember and so that, seeing yeah. the
0: the, uh, the opening ceremony at that bird's nest. I'm like, holy cow, this is going to be incredible. Yeah,
1: yeah and it was it was incredible and and you know you go there and you're waiting the olympic village and you see all the cool things like you know the olympic trees and the banners and the buildings and the torch and all that stuff and you're you're excited and i think also you know i personally was very nervous like there is a feeling of i can't wait to just get going and get this over with because it is very stressful um but there's also this feeling of like, oh my God, I'm we, I am at the Olympics. Like, this is amazing. So there's a little bit of the feet don't touch the ground type of thing.
0: Right, right. Yeah. So you get there and you're you know, preparing. You, you have all these other athletes from the US and as well as the other countries. What happens then? Like, how do you get into go mode and then starting you know, all the, the gymnastic work you have to do? What was that process like? I'm, I'm curious.
1: Once we're there...
0: Yeah, once you're there, like, now the events are, are starting to kick off. I'm sure things start to kick into high gear. What, what is that like?
1: Um, it, it starts to become more real. I mean, the, 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 the stress and the, I guess, like, kind of the mission that you're about to embark on, it becomes, it becomes more real. And so, and gymnastics is a very difficult sport, you know, it's, there are a lot of variables... But there are also like we, the, it's the nature of the sport is remove all the variables. So it's like, it, 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 what it's like. What I mean by that is it's like painting a Monet under extreme pressure. Like a, 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 a bar routine in gymnastics, it, it needs to be so look so effortless and be so still and and look artistic. But what's really going on in the athlete is probably a little bit of mild panic mixed with hope mixed with aggression mixed with dealing with variables tons like milliseconds and so because the nature of that coupled with you're at the olympic games there's a little bit of of kind of a a surrender like this is so big that i'm just kind of going to surrender to the whole thing and work with my teammates and do the best we can we've already trained for this moment and so all of this time leading up to the competition, I just I just need to kill the time and manage my thoughts. And so that's what was going on. It's a lot of training. It's a lot of preparing. And then it's a lot of mental mastery. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you guys uh, get through the Olympic Games. You, you guys do extremely well. You get up on the podium with, the, with the, that bronze medal. Talk to us about that experience. What was that like? Being on the podium, knowing you guys put your heart soul, everything on the line, now you guys got some hardware out of it what was what, was that feeling incredible or what was it like for you
1: it it you know just before that, like what our team was unique in the sense that we were all underdogs going into the Olympics because oh, we it. had lost yeah, we had lost some of our top performers, and so the news while we're there we're reading news from the olympic village saying things like oh the u.s men it's a weak field don't expect much out of them and and they're not going to medal and all this stuff they may not even make it in the finals yeah and so we're reading all of this stuff and you know we're we're getting pretty hot like pretty mad and and we we all decide to kind of have a meeting. And, and we get together and, and I think it was at that moment that we really became a team that we, we kind of shared all, everything that everyone had gone through to get to the Olympic team. And then we told each other that whatever happens on the floor the next day, we're going to leave on the floor and that we're always going to be brothers and we're going to support each other no matter what. It was almost like a, my mistake will be your mistake. Your mistake is my mistake. So it was a true team. And so I think with that philosophy, we went out on Onto the competition floor in Beijing for prelims, we got sixth, and and so that meant we qualified in the finals. And and uh, two days later is the finals, and and we knew that not many people expected much out of us, but honestly, that there was something magical that day because our team performed so well. We were sticking landings and hitting routines like even people in the stands were like some of the jaws were on the ground. Like who is this <laughs> U.S. team? Yeah, I, After the third rotation, we were winning, and then after the fourth rotation, which was high bar, uh, sorry, after the third rotation, which is high bar, the entire arena was chanting USA. So all the Chinese people, China, had already knew they were going to win the Olympics. So then there's this new new thing developing, and that's the story of who's going to get the remainder medals. And after high bar the whole arena was electric. And so even all the Chinese people in the audience were chanting USA. So
0: really? it was like,
1: Oh my gosh. It was one of the, I looked around at that moment. I was like this, I'll remember this moment for the rest of my life. I'm
0: sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it was, it was pretty magical. And, and it really was a testament to how good of a team we were, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, go, going into the last couple of events, we knew we had pommel horses, kind of one of our Achilles heels, but we had, a. Uh, we had a, another alternate who had been named to the team. He came in, and he was a palm horse specialist. And so um, I did my routine. Kevin Tan did his routine. We had a couple of rough spots, but then it left it up to this alternate, Sasha Artemev, who was an alternate, but then he got called in to replace Paul's brother, Morgan. Um, and he, he was really good at horse, but he had never even touched the Olympic floor Now the situation is that it's all up to him to secure the medal for us because if he hits his routine, the United States comes home with a medal. And that routine was always a doozy for him. like It was always difficult. So we we never knew what was going to happen. Sure, But I I think he still had the same team spirit that we had. And he got up there and hit the most beautiful pommel horse routine of his life. You guys can watch it on on YouTube, and that secured – A bronze medal for the United States. And and that's how it all went down. So pretty wild, you know, going from, you know, alternates and then alternate again to being named to the team. And then we're a bunch of rookies and people saying we're not going to deliver to not only that, but then defying the odds and coming home with a medal. So it was, it was pretty amazing.
0: That is an amazing story. I had no idea of that backstory. Just, you know so many things to underscore like the effect of the underdog and just being like right. guys what do we have to lose let's just go and just yeah. kick ass and do the best They're we not. can um and and you know like the the alternate sasha really, you know really rising to the and, occasion when he needs it and, most there's just something magical about that there's really in sports or anything you do, when in those situations, right, where you're not expected to do much, but you just go out and just crush it, I love those kind of stories, man. That must have been what a feeling, man. For the, for not only you, the team, but just I remember the the I remember when I was eighteen, I watched it. I was like, this is what a moment for for, for the team. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I can't believe that's know that's like ten years ago. Can you believe that?
1: No, I don't believe it. Actually, I do. <laughs> You know, we can make like time has flown. Like I think we can all sometimes call up memories and make them feel like yesterday. And so sometimes it, it does feel like yesterday. And then um, then I realize I look at the calendar and I'm like, holy moly, ten years! <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. So okay, so you guys you do this Olympics in the 2008, and then how do you choose, Raj? Like, okay, I've reached the pinnacle of my sport. I did very well. What do I do next? How did how did you approach that decision, and what did you decide to do?
1: Uh, that's a very hard one. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 because the the grander thing is is the question is will I ever find something like gymnastics that that will give me the same everything without like the the body pain? The only th- <laughs> I would still be doing a, I would still be doing gymnastics if my body physically could but unfortunately there's a window for athletes and once that window closes whether you like it or not you have to answer this question of what are you going to do next and and so you know after the olympics i did a couple different things you know i had my own business for a while where i'd go around the country and and lecture and kind of be a sports consultant and and uh talk to gyms and that type of thing um and then Around that time is is where I realized that I actually still have some desire to flip and twist and kind of be be artistic, and so I applied for Cirque du Soleil and got a job with Cirque. Um, no way, and I that's great. With them, yeah, I performed with them for two to three years in a show called Iris, and that was a it was a Los Angeles kind of resident premiere show here at the Kodak Theater uh, now the Dolby theater. And so that's, that's what brought me to Los Angeles. And that was like the perfect blend of post gymnastics, theater, um, applause, you know, show, showmanship, that type of thing. And and so I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It's one of the greatest experiences ever. So I carried on for, you know, two, two or three years. And then, um, I, that kind of became an inspiration. That and a buddy of mine uh, kind of pushed me into the acting realm. And so, what I realized in being a gymnast, an artistic gymnast, especially for 25 years, and I'm only realizing this now post-gymnastically, is that that entire time we gymnasts were, were and are actually artists. That right. every routine, every routine we did was a form of self-expression, kind of saying, "This is who I am," you know to the judges and to the audience that, you know, for the next 50 to 70 seconds, this is my craft. This is my art. I hope it looks beautiful. I've put a lot of time into it. The same type of thing that an artist would go through, um, putting up a a painting in a gallery or a, a Broadway show, so to speak. And so that, that, that theme and thread has stuck with me now pretty strongly. And so I did acting for three years, still do a little bit now. And, um, I'm doing stand-up comedy. Um, <laughs> no so, way! You're, yeah, you're yeah. a man
0: of many talents, my friend.
1: I mean, I guess I don't know. Just kind of listening to the, you know, the the, the voice yeah. that that doesn't really go away. You know that I've, I've always enjoyed arts and art forms, and, and honestly, in my 25 year quest as an athlete, I didn't have the time to pursue these things like the acting and the comedy and and the things that I really want to. So I I have that time now so I definitely make time for it. But it's nice to have the realization that I've actually been an artist also for for 25 years. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
0: and so now um, I I would love to ask about, you know, now that you've you've kind of the gymnastics is still an important part of you that you've um, you know evolved into these other art Art forms like like stand up comedy and, and 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 acting and and speaking are are the things you you mentioned this before are the things around that that give you that same drive and energy like gymnastics used to do for you or is it a combination of those things that that gets you excited to wake up in the morning and pursue them
1: uh it, it gets me it does get the, it gets the thrill aspect going the like the the heartbeat factor. So before either I go perform or speak right. to an audience, something, you know, you get the heart flutters and the kind of the feeling I used to hate that stuff. I still do, but I've had to kind of re, re, re label that as, as, and kind of quoting someone who I worked with years ago, called it the high achiever voice. And so it, rather than trying to fight it and say, why does that happen to me? It's more so embracing it because it's propelling me to do something risky and scary and daring and bold and, and all of those things. And that's where life to me exists is, you know, anytime I'm too comfortable it is, is kind of a time to take inventory that, Hey, are you, are you feeling really fulfilled? Are you doing what you want to do in life? Um, because, I really think life is about pushing outside of your comfort zones, you know, and and finding out actually how many talents a person has because it's there. You may be a fantastic mother and uh, an amazing dad, or an amazing engineer, or 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 what have you. But if you get some time to also listen to the other voices that say, "Hey, you've always been interested in that guitar," or you've always wanted to draw or you've always wanted to do this, like those little passions and things, I think it's important to pay attention to that voice because you might ex- find and explore a, a hidden talent that you didn't even know you had, and it might be something that brings you a lot of joy.
0: Yeah, I love that. Listening to the inner voice I think is something that I personally have to develop over time because sometimes mm. it's like this nagging thing where you're like, "Ah, oh, this is what my parents or these are what my friends I should do but this is something that my you know inner voice my soul my my creative right. genius is asking me to do how to listen to both and is i think a struggle that we all have as we grow up and we get better and better at it, i think as you said, through these experiences yeah um yeah. but cool i i want to i want to switch gears to some of our rapid fire questions before uh before we have to go um just again these are questions that we've had over the the all the interviews that we've asked we've got some really great responses so would love to hear some of your thoughts behind it um so is there a, a person raj that you look up to who's south asian um that comes up when you think of the word success or successful or someone you look up to is there someone that comes up that comes to mind
1: absolutely my dad <laughs> i know i know you may have gotten this answer or whatnot but you know when i read it beforehand and you know i could i could rattle off some other notable south Asians that are doing amazing things but to me my experience in my life the 38 years that i've been here the most notable south asian to me is my dad yeah. and the reason is is um i look back now and realize how many things he said to me as a kid that that somehow stuck in my brain that also pushed me to be to become this professional athlete, an Olympic athlete, and all of that. Um, and so there's those things that I'm very, very thankful for. But there's also, now that I'm older, a, a huge admiration of his choices, meaning he, he was the oldest born in India. And at some point in his life, he said i'm going to leave and go to america and create another life over there and and build a family and build a life in america and with probably his parents blessings but not like an amazing means to go and do it and and they did it he did it and and not only did he do it he did it well he he thrived and and is thriving and i have such an admiration from that because it, it's a it's a very entrepreneurial and risky endeavor to, at some point in your life, just uproot everything that you know, leave the people that you know behind, mm-hmm. leave the culture traditions, the country, and go somewhere else and build completely brand new, and then get it done, not just get it done, but have an amazing family, um, provide for that family and live a very full life. And so, by a landslide the most notable south asian to me is my dad
0: that's amazing and you know the funny thing is we've gotten that answer more times than i think just those big people which goes to show you know how much impact our parents can have on us and i think about that too is like some of the problems i i think about and i you know battle with i'm like these pale in comparison to some of the things my parents and my grandparents yeah. had to struggle with to get me to this point. So uh, you always use that as a filter and say, oh. uh, we're just so grateful and fortunate to have the parents and the people in our life that we do, because otherwise we wouldn't have these minor problems that we have to deal with day to day. So I love that answer. Um, well, thanks. Another question I have for you, Raj, and I think you touched on it a little bit, is Is there a movie or book that has the most impact on you? And I know you, you mentioned success principles and the accountability you've learned. Um mm-hmm. Earlier, but is there any other books or movies that that you can think of that had a, had a huge impact?
1: Yes, there are several. Um, I guess one. So there's the, obviously the Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Um, that's that's a even a huge go to even now in my life. Um, outside of that, books by Eckhart Tolle, um, especially A New Earth and the The Power of Now. I think that. That understanding what he spoke about in his books, uh, kind of from like from a philosophy perspective, that really understanding the present moment, that there is no pain in the present moment. That's, that's when I got to levels of that much awareness, especially after missing an Olympic team and then being the alternate again in 2008.
0: Yeah.
1: That, that was a tool that I actually used quite a bit to not allow myself to dive either into despair or worry too much about the future. That if I just bring myself back to this moment here and now with nothing else going on in my mind, um, that, that it was very freeing that it was, it was very centered. um, And I was able to kind of, um, you know, get myself either out of painful places or stop worrying about the future. And so his books had a big impact on me. Um and I guess most recently, a book um, well, I'll save this answer actually for one of your other questions. So <laughs> okay, go for got it, it. Yeah. got
0: it yeah, so the, the the other question that I think you've touched on a lot in this interview, which I, I think are some amazing points, but if you could distill, uh, let's say, an up-and-coming South Asian person who's interested in becoming an athlete, whether it be gymnastics or something else, and you're talking to him or her, what advice would you would you give them and why? Because the, the reason why I think this is so important, especially with you, is we don't have many role models in our community who have done it all, who have been athletes, have done everything else. So uh-huh. what advice would you give to someone who's just up and coming and would love to hear what you have to say to them?
1: Um you know that the it will become very real at some point that you know you'll be met with external forces, whether it's the pressures of school weighing down on you or whether it's the thoughts in your head saying that you may not be good enough or um, something else if, you, if you're an athlete and there's gonna come a a point where you feel like you have to give it up because you need to be successful at something else. What I would really tell that person in that moment is, well, what really brings you joy? Like if you're a tennis player and, and you're an aspiring athlete and could go to college on a scholarship and you get a lot of joy from tennis, but one grade in one class is slipping or you feel like you don't have time ask yourself your soul how much you really enjoy the feeling of hitting a forehand winner or just hit or being on the court or being outside and if that fills you up in some way that you can't explain to people then I would say don't give up and you should never feel pressured to give it up by some sort of you know external circumstance so you you got to really get in touch with yourself and ask yourself do I love what I'm doing? And if the answer is yes, well, then no explanation needed. You know, hopefully you can continue to do that for the rest of your life. And, um, you know, I would love to see more South Asian athletes commanding a presence in all sports. It's starting to happen now, but um, I would encourage anyone out there because you have athletic abilities. Maybe you just haven't explored them yet and you haven't spent enough time in it. Um that you can do both you can do academics, you can do sports, you can do all these other endeavors and 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 still remain a, a kind of a complete human being and go for lofty things so yeah
0: I love it, I love it, so for everyone listening, man, Raj is a clear example of doing it the right way, and uh mm-hmm. I hope everyone takes that to heart because that is just amazing pieces of advice for someone who's gotten to the highest level of his sport but not lost the humanity and in, in doing that so I, I really appreciate that Raj um, any final ask for the audience anything you'd like to leave them with a thought a just a, a quote or just something that's on your mind as, as we as we sign off anything you'd like to leave them with
1: um, well I, I mean, you know I, I I would say that you know like, I guess you know my story, or or the story that anybody is is creating or writing for themselves. Um, you know, make it inspirational. You know, be be some sort of ambassador for either some sort of truth, or or a life principle, or some sort of success tool that you can wrap yourself around and and go full force with it. Because you know what I'm finding is that people are inspired by that and really any any big dream or or goal anything that's been achieved or that you want to achieve it starts with a belief it that is at the ground floor it has to start with some sort of belief and after that you you can start to layer all these other things on top of it technique and Uh, what have you, but it's, it's that grain of belief that as long as you have, um, you can do all of these amazing things. I just, I try to tell my athletes that now that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to believe what you want to achieve, even if you don't, even if there's the voice inside of you that doubts it a little bit, um, have an have unwavering belief in yourself and that what you want to do is attainable. That's what I would say.
0: That is amazing. That is amazing. It's important to believe what you want to achieve. That's a great, great parting thought. Thank you. Um, yep. Raj, where can people find you? If people want to hear more about you, more about what you're up to, your story, what's the best place, best place for people to, to get in touch?
1: Uh, I would think uh, either, you know, like a Facebook direct message, or I'm just getting Instagram and those things going, so that's fine too. Um, yeah, that'd be great.
0: Great, and I know you have a website as well, so I'll, we'll be sure to. Oh yeah,
1: that's the other one. Yeah,
0: <laughs> we'll put those links all in our in our notes, show notes for for today. Um, but. Sure. But Raj, what an interview meant. chock full of so many good stuff. My note page is literally filled with great stuff that uh, I think a lot of people will will enjoy. So thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank you all. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye.
0: Hey, guys. It's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com Thanks a lot, and see you next time.